This morning we're stepping briefly out of our series on the Epistle to the Philippians to consider a fascinating text in the Gospel of Mark from Mark chapter 9 verses 14 to 27. That passage is on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to look at it there. The context of our passage this morning is this. Immediately before um, the narrative that Mark records here, um, he records Jesus's transfiguration. Jesus has just been transfigured by the Spirit of God, which means that he went up on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, and light appeared around him. His clothes shone with white, a whiteness that was more than anything on the earth could produce, Mark says. Moses and Elijah appear there with him, and the glory cloud of God's own presence descends on the mountain, just as it did on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And God's voice speaks from the cloud, and he says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In the transfiguration, Jesus' true nature, his divine glory is revealed. It is an astonishing moment. But what happens next in our passage, I think, is astonishing as well in the passage we'll look at this morning. For here, God's true Son, revealed in his transfiguration, enters back into the suffering and despair of the world that he has made, the world that has been broken and ruined by sin. And he does so full of grace and mercy and love. Listen now, friends, to God's holy and inerrant word. And when they, that is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the disciples, they're coming down from the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, why are you arguing? What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher. I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. 
Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your father and heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you've caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. So grant us now the grace that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of your word, that by it we may even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All of us are accustomed, I think, to considering the way in which God is gracious and merciful to us regarding the forgiveness of our sins. Hopefully, at least, you know what I'm talking about. Each of us know what it is like to confess our sins, our misdeeds, to feel the helplessness and shame that comes with those things, to acknowledge our transgression to God, and then greatly to receive the covering of those sins by the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Jesus died for our sins. That is good news indeed. And God's grace and mercy, his gracious and merciful character is certainly revealed in how he forgives us our sins. But beloved, do you know that God's grace and mercy goes far beyond simply the forgiveness of your sin. It covers more than just your sin's forgiveness. His grace and mercy is also shown to you by the way in which he deals with you in the weakness of your faith. Strangely, I think we often separate out the act of faith as a work that we perform on our own. God's grace covers our sins, sure, yes, That we can acknowledge, but sometimes we can live as though our faith that is required of us is is from us. The grace that is, or the faith that's required to receive the forgiveness of that sin is a work that we perform on our own, even apart from God's mercy. It's as if God has a particular standard for our faith, a a mark that we have to hit. And if our faith wavers and and isn't strong, if it's afflicted by uncertainty and doubt, well, we need to work on that. We need to look to ourselves and summon our strength and bolster our faith and try harder to believe. But friends, that's not how faith works. Works. No, as Hebrews 12 states clearly, it is not ourselves, but Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter, the beginning and the end of our faith. And God's grace and mercy is displayed here, perhaps in some ways especially here, as he receives and accepts 
the imperfect and even weak faith of his people. Beloved, you need to know this. Jesus accepts your weak and fragile faith, and he does so because he is full of grace and mercy. It is his character to do so. Your strong and certain faith is not how you prove your love for Jesus. No, the tenderness with which Christ accepts your imperfect faith is the way in which he proves his love for you. And our passage this morning drives this point home in an interesting way, I believe. You see, when Jesus and the other three men, the three disciples, come down from the mountain, they find a great crowd and an argument is breaking out. And Jesus says, what's going on here? What are you arguing about? And a voice comes out from this mass of people that are milling around. It says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, a, a demon. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, right? It casts him on the ground. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. This is a frightening scene that Jesus walks into. A father brings his son who is plagued by a demon. The disciples who are there at the base of the mountain are powerless to do anything about it. They're helpless in the face of this demonic power and it is causing confusion and disorder. This is striking because earlier in Mark's gospel, in chapter 6, when the twelve were sent out by Jesus, they were given power to cast out the unclean spirits, and they indeed are casting out many demons, Mark tells us. But now, in the face of this demon, they are helpless. Why? Jesus tells them. In response to the Father's anguished description of the inability of the apostles to cast out the demon, he says, Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, bring this boy to me. O faithless generation, Jesus says, the disciples are unable to cast out the demon Because of the weakness of their faith. They call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Peter has just declared that, but they have no concept yet of what it means that he will be crucified. Their faith is weak and immature. They certainly do not have the sanctified imagination necessary to anticipate his rising from the dead. Their faith is there in some way, But it is weak and immature. It wavers easily and now they are defeated by a demon. What does Jesus do? He doesn't turn away from this situation. He doesn't say, well, this looks like a good learning opportunity for you boys. You all figure it out. No, he steps into their weak faith, their impotence, which is very much on display in this moment, their shame. And he calls that demon-possessed boy near to him. And when they bring the boy, the power of the demon rises within him. He throws the boy on the ground. He convulses him. He makes the boy to roll into foam at the mouth. I mean, can you imagine the scene? The people watching, the tension, the confusion, the anger. 
And faced with this unimaginable suffering right before him on the ground, Jesus looks at the Father in the eyes and he asks this gentle and yet penetrating and heartbreaking question of the Father. He says, how long? How long has this been happening to him? I love that Jesus asks that question here in this narrative and that Mark thinks it's important enough to record it. I mean, that question is so dignifying of this father in this moment of shame and exposure and weakness. It's so perceptive. It's so kind in the deepest meaning of that word. How long, Jesus says to the father, how long have you had to endure this? Have you had to watch helplessly as your boy suffers in this way? How long has the demon done this? And the father says, from childhood, right? As long as I can remember. And it's often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, that's what the father says to Jesus. I mean, he must be like, Just worn out at this point, right? If you can do anything, he says, just do it. You can understand why he puts it that way. This man has brought his son to the apostles. He's traveled who knows how far and at what expense to do so. And it's been totally pointless, right? He's brought him all this way, gone through the trouble, and it's happening again. And now it's happening in front of a crowd, right? It's not even in the privacy of their home. It's happening right there. His helplessness is on display. There is his son convulsing again on the ground, just as he has done since he was a little child. And this has to be shameful for a father. He must feel so weak, so unable to help his son. It's, it's totally out of his ability to do anything to help his child. This man has some level Certainly a faith in God, but it's wavering. It's hanging on by a thread. He's worn down. He's weary. He wants to believe that God loves him and that God is powerful and that God is present, but it's so hard in the context of the particular suffering of his life. Like the disciples, the father of this demon-possessed child is helpless, just as they are. And I think any of us who have followed Jesus for any length of time know what it is like to be like this man. We know what it is like to face suffering and despair in our lives and not have any answers for it. To have barely any faith left. We know what it's like, don't we, friends, to say to God, if you can do anything with this mess, then help me. Have compassion. Do something. Because I don't have anything left. And that place of weak faith is just where Jesus, the one who is the profounder, I'm sorry, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, steps in. That's where he meets us. We have to see that in this text. Jesus meets this man in this place of frustration and despair. He says, if you can... He quotes the man's words back to him. He says, if you can, 
All things are possible for one who believes. In the face of this man's barely existing faith, Jesus reaches out to him like a lifeguard, throwing him a life preserver as he drowns in the waters. All things are possible, Jesus says, for one who believes. And then immediately, I love how Mark has that, immediately Mark tells us, When this man, this father, hears that promise, he reaches for it. He clings to it. But notice how he clings to it. His grip is not strong. In fact, the grip of his faith on that rope that Jesus has thrown is very weak. Mark records it this way after Jesus says, All things are possible for one who believes. The man immediately, Mark says, the father of the child cried out and said, He cried out, right? I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, but there's a bit of an asterisk. Right? I believe, but, you know, I'm covering my bases a little bit. This father cries out from somewhere deep in his gut. His little bit of, little bit of faith cries out. And he says these words that acknowledge that mixture of belief and unbelief, of doubt and hope, of confusion and certainty that are within him. All at once, he says, I believe, and then immediately, help my unbelief. It's one of the most honest expressions of faith in all of the scriptures, I think, right? There's no dissembling here. This man is just, it's on the table. I believe, help my unbelief, because that's there too. And I can't fix it. I need you to help me with it. I believe, yes, I believe, but I also don't fully believe, is what he's saying. Not really. I'm torn, I'm divided within my very self. I'm wrestling with belief and unbelief at the same time. And in that place, what can I say but help me? Help me, please. And what does Jesus do? It's important to say what he, see what he doesn't do, right? He doesn't say, what, what, hey, You heard the first part of that, but then you said something. Help my unbelief? He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, well, sorry, friend, I only help those who fully believe. I only hear the cries of complete faith. Why don't you work on that and come back when your unbelief is resolved? No, he doesn't do that. That's not our Lord. That's not how he deals with us. No, Jesus responds to and welcomes This man's ragged, genuine, not yet perfected, very incomplete confession of faith. He receives it as though the unbelief weren't present at all. That's the dynamic thing to see here, right? This man doesn't get half a healing because his faith was halfway there. He gets a whole healing. Jesus deals with him as though his faith were completely strong and mature. He rebukes the unclean spirit with all of his authority as the Son of God. He says to the spirit, you, and notice there's no gap, right? Jesus hears this this complex, not yet perfect, immature confession of faith, and he says to the demon, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you. Come out of him and never come back. And then Mark says, the demon came out, The boy was like a corpse, and most of them said, he is dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. This is the profound gift that Jesus gives in response to this father's bare and desperate confession of faith. He, in a very real sense, raises his son from the dead. Beloved, what I want you to see in this passage is how Jesus deals with weak faith. His apostles, his closest disciples, are impotent and blind and confused. This father doesn't have anything more than a ragged confession of faith that is clearly mixed with doubt. Belief that is wrestling with unbelief. And yet Jesus draws near to them in this place. And not only does what they cannot do, he does for them what they can barely believe he can do in the first place. He drives the demon from the man's son. He makes him live again. He abides with those who come to him in their weakness. He does not turn them away. Quite the opposite. He saves them. And beloved, this is what our Lord Jesus Christ does today for you as well. When your faith is weak, Jesus does not despise you. Believe that. When your faith is weak, Jesus does not despise you. That's not who our God is. Friends, this is what it means for Christ to be your life. In the midst of the weakness of your faith, it means that he is the one who makes you strong. Because he is the founder of your faith, and he is also the perfecter of your faith. He started it. He will bring it to completion. He takes fundamental responsibility for it. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of your faith, as well as its end. Your faith is actually, in all ways, in all things, a gift. How could it be otherwise? How could your faith be anything other than a gift from the Lord? And his mercy and grace is revealed in the way he gives you that faith. Especially, especially when it is weak. Friends, weak faith is real faith. It is not fake faith. It is not somehow fooling somebody. Weak faith is real faith. And if you don't believe me, then I'd encourage you to consider the words of John Calvin, who writes these remarkable words about faith that are printed on the back of your order of worship. People have a lot of misconceptions about John Calvin, and I think it's because he's always frowning in his portraits. But this is the kind of way that Calvin talked as a pastor to people who had weak faith. He's reflecting on this story. In Mark 9, he says, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine, he says, it's unimaginable for me, any certainty that is not tinged with doubt. Calvin's saying this, right? He's talking about his own faith. I can't imagine, he says, any certainty that doesn't have a tinge of doubt or any assurance that is not assailed 
by some anxiety. Indeed, we say that believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief, not occasional conflict. Notice that, right? Perpetual conflict, ongoing, unceasing. Therefore, Calvin says, the godly heart feels in itself a division because it is partly imbued with sweetness from its recognition of the divine goodness, partly grieves in bitterness from awareness of its calamity, partly rests upon the promise of the gospel, partly trembles at the evidence of its own iniquity, partly rejoices at the expectation of life, partly shudders at death. This variation arises from the imperfection of faith since in the course of the present life it never, never, never goes so well with us that we are wholly cured of the disease of unbelief and entirely filled and possessed by faith. He says, this is your life in this world. Never to be wholly cured of these things. Even if we are distracted by various thoughts, We are not on that account completely divorced from faith. Nor if we are troubled on all sides by the agitation of unbelief, are we for that reason immersed in its abyss. Even if we are drowning in unbelief and doubt. For if we are struck, we are not for that reason cast down from our position. For the end of the conflict is always this that faith ultimately triumphs over those difficulties which besiege and seem to imperil it because it is the faith that God gives, not ours. And then he says this blunt statement that we need to hear. Even weak faith is real faith, right? I mean, somebody needs to put that on a meme with Calvin's mug, you know? Weak faith is real faith. Beloved, know this, know this. More times than you would like to admit, your faith is weak. It is, it's divided. It's two steps forward, one step back on a good day. Just like the disciples, just like the father in the story, just like anybody who has followed Jesus. But the weakness of your faith does not mean that it is not real. What you need to know is that every person who has ever followed Jesus has had weak faith. Our faith is always tinged by doubt. It's always imperfect, as Calvin says. We are never in this life cured of the disease fully of unbelief. Perpetually, we deal with this conflict. And yet, weak faith is real faith. Weak faith is real faith, not because God is just a nice guy, but because any faith that exists is given to us by Jesus Christ. It is his gift, and he is its founder, and he will be its perfecter. It is his work, and not ours, to make it strong. And he will do that work of perfecting our faith, even as we cry out and honestly say, I believe, help my unbelief. Friends, that is a prayer For you to pray to God, given to you by the apostle who wrote it down because he wanted you to hear it. He wanted you to see it. He wanted you to see how Jesus responded to that prayer. I believe. 
help my unbelief. Beloved, this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And even now, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, so let us repent and believe this gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.